Welcome to the Queen of the Sciences podcast, conversations between a theologian and her dad. I'm your host, Sarah Henlicky wilson And I am Paul R. Henlicky. Today, on our very first episode, We Go Meta, as theologians doing a theology podcast, we thought we would start first by asking just what theology is, what it's for, and who needs it. Well, I have to say, daughter... <laughs> that I'm a little bit embarrassed by the title you've chosen for this podcast, Queen of the Sciences. <laughs> you don't like being associated with that, the queen? No, it's it, it's the memory of the medieval period when theology was the queen of the sciences. Is that what you have in That's mind? That's where your objection lies, I see. Well, actually, the truth be told, I was casting around for a good title for this podcast, and all the good theology titles were already taken, or at least the obvious ones. And then I just stumbled on Queen of the Sciences. And, you know, uh, everyone knows that I regard myself very highly. So thinking of myself as Queen of the Sciences was a, a pleasant um, self-aggrandizing thought. But honestly, I was, I was just <laughs> surprised that no one had taken it yet, and it seemed ideal. Now, it is true, for those of you who don't know, Queen of the Sciences is what theology was called in the Middle Ages. It was the highest and best discipline that united them all. It implied this superior view, loftiness, kind of God's eye view of reality. Um, Obviously, we mean it a bit tongue-in-cheek nowadays. Theology is certainly not regarded as the queen of the sciences anymore. In fact, it's not even regarded as a science. That's partly because the meaning of the word science has drifted in English away from simply scholarship or knowledge to something more like um, the scientific methods, hypothesis, and testing-driven methodology. But even more so, there are certainly lots of people today who would discard theology altogether as a relic of the past and say that true answers are not found in anything like a religious discipline of reflection, but only in human reason and natural science. So rather than being the undisputed queen nowadays, theology has to defend its very right to exist. Theology is more like the poor little sister. <laughs> than the queen of the sciences, <laughs> right. right? Well, poor little sister wouldn't have made for a very catchy podcast title. Well, I'm glad to learn from you that we're taking this title a little bit tongue-in-cheek, a little bit ironically. In fact, you know, I do, in many of my writings, have argued that theology today is a highly conflicted discipline. In fact, when I'm teaching beginning students I surprise them by, instead of enunciating the word God, I instead say, now what does G-O-D think about that? <laughs> and of course, they're all a little perplexed by this usage. And after I've done it for a while, I say, now why does that strange professor say G-O-D instead of God? Oh, I don't know. He's just strange, I suppose. They <laughs> well, think. they'd but be right about that. I, <laughs> they would be, I suppose. You've got to be a little bit strange nowadays to be a theologian, right? <laughs> Amen. <laughs> Amen. But I say it because I, I teach the students that the word G-O-D is the most um, promiscuous word in the language. <laughs> it can mean just about anything. Mm. It will sleep with just about anyone. <laughs> G-O-D, what are we, in the world, are we talking about? Mm. What in the world are we talking about? Now, I think if you actually look at the variety of inquiries today that call themselves theology, what you largely find is an, a habit of thought deeply entrenched 
in the Western Christian tradition of laying some kind of foundation for theology in other disciplines. Mm. Classically, that was philosophy, mm -hmm. especially Platonic or Aristotelian philosophy. But as the uh, modern world erupted, the confidence in Aristotle's philosophy or Plato's philosophy as providing a foundation for Christian thinking about G.O.D. has kind of eroded. And as a result, we've seen theology uh, experiment with all sorts of other philosophical foundations, mm. from, from German idealism and or German historicism, existentialism, Marxism, feminism, one can go on and on. And of course, all of these disciplines have their own schisms and cross currents running through them. Uh, as a result, theology today is all over the map if we look out uh, at what is called theology and what passes for G.O.D. Mm. Yeah, that's a great way of, of approaching it, is simply pointing out how hard it is to even know what we're talking about when we pronounce the G.O.D. word. Um, so I'm yeah. thinking now all of the examples you just gave, that really speaks to the side of theology defending its, its public space in the modern world vis-a-vis -vis other ethical or philosophical or scientific commitments. But we're obviously, you and I anyway, are both starting from a place also of Christian faith. This isn't only a, a job, as it were, but also comes out of our own conviction. So I think let's, let's definitely get back to the faith and reason question in a future episode. But from now, let's do it. Let's take this question of what theology is from the side of faith. Why do we need theology as believers, as practicing Christians? Why not, for example, classic Protestant answer is, why not just have the Bible? Why is it not enough simply to say what the Bible says? Or in a more um, expansive and older tradition, why not just do what the church does, engage in the sacramental and worship practices? Why is it that we as believers need theology? Why can't we just settle on practice and repeating the Bible alone? Well, the practice of reading the Bible alone and getting it right, that's a task. It's, not, it's easier said than done. What I'd like to perhaps do, though, is take up the very good idea, ad fontis, back to the sources, which for Christian theology is codified in the canon of Old and New Testaments, right? Sure. Why not go back to the Bible? Let's begin with the Bible. But let's also see that theology as an inquiry, as a disciplined inquiry, uh, using the tools of thought, of reason and reflection, is right there in the Bible itself. And we could actually begin with the, with the very first uh, Christian literature that we know to exist. And that would be Paul's first letter to the Thessalonians. Scholars widely agree that this is the first example we have of early Christian literature, the Apostle Paul's first letter to the Thessalonians. That's the very first piece of Christian literature that we know of. That we know of, right? Now, of course, material in the Gospels might be older, certainly would be older than first, but we don't have that 
in that form. We have them in the later form of the Gospels. But I want to point out to the statement Paul makes in 1 Thessalonians where he's praising the people there, the congregation, the Thessalonians, and says, you regarded our preaching of the gospel for what it truly is, the word of God. Now notice here, Paul doesn't know that 1 Thessalonians is going to become a part of the later canon of the New Testament. (laughs) The New Testament doesn't exist yet. This is before the Bible as we know it uh, is assembled, put together, uh, canonized, and so forth and so on. And yet, Paul can praise the Thessalonians uh, because they regard his gospel, his good news, as the very word of God. Now, I take that to mean that theology begins, launches, gets off the ground uh, with a word that is given to us prior to our reflection or thought. A word somehow addresses us, speaks to us. From the outside, as Luther would always say. Yeah, from outside of ourselves and takes a hold of us. That means that the word of God comes to us as an event of good news. And that is what launches uh, Paul's kind of theology. Moreover, you can say, generally speaking about Paul, can't you? that this gospel word of God transforms Paul's own subjectivity just as he expects his preaching of it to transform the subjectivity uh, of his his people, of his converts, the Thessalonians. He says, you've turned from idols to serve a living God and to await his Son from heaven, Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come. Paul launches his theology with a message, a word from allegedly from God, that comes upon people and transforms their subjectivity, turning from idols to serve a living God. And Paul consequently is writing his letters to sustain those audiences in their difficult new way in a world in which they are awaiting the consummation, the fulfillment, the deliverance that has been promised to them in this initiating word of God. So if I follow you correctly, there's sort of four steps here and theology is in the third place. So the first step is this word from the outside, good news in the case of the gospel. The second step is the transformation of the subject in response to that word. And then the third place, what we're identifying as theology, is the ongoing conversation, preaching, consolation, reminder, etc., that sustains people who have been transformed by this word until, step four, Jesus comes again in glory and fulfills his promises fully and visibly. Is that right? Yeah, I, I like that. Um, sometimes I, I say to students, you can distinguish at least three different levels of discourse in theology. First and primary is the word of God as event, as gospel that is preached. Uh, second would be reflection on how to preach the gospel so that it is delivered faithful, faithfully and accurately. So the first would be talk about God, and the second level would be talk 
about talk about <laughs> right. God. <clears throat> right? So you have a an immediate level, the preaching of the Word of God, and a reflective level. How do I preach the God, Word of God uh, faithfully, accurately, precisely? And then you could even add a third level. Talk about, talk about, talk <laughs> about God. And that's a lot of what academic theologians do. When I write a paper on Paul Tillich or Karl Barth or Rudolf Bultmann or Dorte Zola, right? I'm, I'm talking about how these theologians have talked about talk about right. God. And I suppose you could pull it back even at the beginning, one step for one step prior even, and say, for example, Jesus or Jesus preaching is even more primal than preaching about Jesus preaching. Well, that's a, that's a complicated question, isn't it? Uh, Rudolf Bultmann famously said the riddle of the New Testament is how the proclaimer became the proclaimed. How, how did Jesus' faith in God, like we know from, for example, from the Lord's Prayer, how did Jesus' faith become faith in Jesus Christ, the Son of God? Or like in the... I was going to say, like in the Gospel of John, how it starts with the, the hymn to the Logos, the Word became flesh, and then that Word goes right. on to speak an awful lot of words throughout the rest of that Gospel. Right, exactly. And is it possible even to then to access the faith of Jesus apart from some faith about Jesus? I think that's a pretty heavy question, but we can bracket that to a future discussion, don't you Oh, think? yeah. We, we have plenty of time to keep uh, uh, fleshing these topics out. Very good. So um, what I want to say then is we can actually see how Christian theology is first being invented and developed in Paul the Apostle generally. Uh, but I think for today's discussion specifically, let's take a look at 1 Corinthians. Why don't you tell me what you remember about 1 Corinthians? Well, what I remember in the context of having been a parish pastor myself is all of the times that Paul harangued the Corinthians for not being what they were <laughs> and all the things that they were doing wrong. But uh, amidst all of this haranguing and correcting and don't you get this yet, on the front end, there's, uh, of course, wonderful passages about the wisdom of God and the folly of God and how that compares to human wisdom and folly. And then at the far end of 1 Corinthians is the glorious words about the resurrection of Christ and the resurrection of, of all believers. And so all of this uh, congregational conflict and pastoral tearing out of the hair is set inside of these really some of the most, I think, beautiful and profound words in the entire scripture. Well, that's great, Sarah. I think chapter 1 on the word of the cross and chapter 15 on the promise of the resurrection form, as it were, bookends for the first letter to the Corinthians so that Paul can locate all the difficulties and challenges the Christians have living as people expecting uh, awaiting Jesus, his son, who delivers us from the wrath to, uh, to come, as I quoted First Thessalonians earlier. How do you sustain that life <clears throat> of expectation and hope in a world in which there are powers that still contradict and, and, and militate against uh, the God of the gospel? Inside and out. Uh, within the congregation, the, the world, the hostile world penetrates even the believing congregation. 
and erupts within it, causing schisms and fractions and difficulties and immoralities and, and misunderstandings of the Lord's Supper, all the numerous problems that are discussed in 1 Corinthians. So let's, let's, again, to tie into what we said, theology begins with a word prior to thought, a word given for us to think about. And this word, as Paul characterizes it in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 1, is a very paradoxical word. Permit me to read a little bit. Please do. The word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. What a remarkable passage that is. Isn't uh, it? it is, and I, I just, sorry, I have to add on verse 25, right where you left off. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. I have always loved that too. Right. And we could go on then even to continue the passage, consider your calling. Many of you were not wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise, what is weak in the world to shame why what is nothing at all in order to bring to naught the things that That'll are. turn your metaphysic upside down. Well, there you see that you're doggone right at well. And there you see both of these elements I was talking about, that there is a word that is given to us apart from us prior to our thought and reflection. It strikes us very paradoxically. It can seem utter nonsense, foolishness, and a stumbling block. Uh, but this same paradoxical word uh, can signal the world cosmic revolution, the microcosm of which is the transformation of the human subject when one becomes a believer through this message. I want to just focus in on that little statement of Paul, we preach Christ crucified. Mm -hmm. That is a contradiction in terms. <laughs> right. That is like saying, here is your deposed king. Yeah, it's like saying victor victimized, or like saying David slain by Goliath, right. or Joshua uh, destroyed by the the Canaanites. Right. Or look at this lively corpse. <laughs> right. It, it it's such a paradoxical expression. It's not irrational that traditional Jews heard Paul's message and said, you're out of your mind. This is, this is, this is not Your great learning has made you mad. Right? You're, it's a, a contradiction in terms, which makes no sense. It's just nonsense. And Paul owns it. Right. He doesn't run away from it. And he points to the fact 
that through this paradoxical message, whose sense he goes on to explicate in 1 Corinthians at great length, I think most beautifully in the 13th chapter on the nature of God's creative love. Well, I was just going to say, so he owns that it's nonsense. He owns that it's a paradox, and yet he explains it. So there is an intelligibility to this paradox or contradiction that isn't just errant nonsense of the useless, unproductive kind that, you know, anyone could, you know, in theory, make up a religion, say anything however ridiculous, and say, but really, it's true, it's a paradox, (laughs) you know? So there's some some sort of, like, not just uh, reason, but transformation of reason, and I think Paul is suggesting here that it's not what he, what he's saying is not unreasonable or irrational, but it's not accessible in the context of worldly wisdom, that some other kind of wisdom has to come, and it will disclose its own intelligibility, but it will be intelligible under the right circumstances, but they're not ones that human beings can supply on their own without this well, what will ultimately be the intervention of the Holy Spirit to make it intelligible to them. That's a wonderful reading of 1 Corinthians because that's exactly the course Paul takes. In chapters 2, 3, and 4 of 1 Corinthians, Paul talks at length about the one you named, the Holy Spirit. The Spirit, uh, he says that the natural person cannot understand the things of God. They are... Uh, Uh, nonsense to him, but the spiritual person uh, perceives. Now, when Paul says a spiritual person, he doesn't mean someone who's cultivated warm and fuzzy feelings in their inner recesses. When Paul says a spiritual person, he means a person who's been seized uh, and overtaken by the Spirit of Jesus Christ. Now, we can talk about that at length at some other point. Uh, It's extremely important for understanding this. But your uh, observation, I think, to use some technical language, Christ crucified is what is called a catacrestic metaphor. Oh, I love it. Catacrestic. Catacrestic metaphor. A catacrestic metaphor uh, is created. It sounds oxymoronic. It sounds like nonsense, like gibberish. Christ crucified sounds like gibberish. It sounds like victor victimized. Because there's no existing word in the vocabulary to accurately assign something new that has come into the world, Uh something that was not hitherto there for which there's no pre-existing vocabulary. So it's kind of like when we learn other languages, we suddenly discover they have words for a color or a concept or a piece of furniture that doesn't exist in our own culture. And we're so delighted and surprised by it. So we didn't know it before. We had no resources for it. But once it's introduced to us, we can begin to access it. And sometimes we just take it over wholesale, like saying sushi or umami from Japanese. We just transliterate <laughs> right into English because it's so very much of that world that it comes from. Wonderful. And your, your further point is that it can be rationally explicated. And in fact, it depends on rational explication 
to prevent it from turning into nothing but folly and foolishness and nonsense. So would this be then, sorry, this could be our, as we're trying to get to a definition or account of what theology is. So one of the things theology is doing is taking this hitherto inaccessible word or conceptuality or event or message from the God of the gospel, bringing it into our language and making it intelligible to us, which would otherwise remain unintelligible. Yes, I think that's exactly right. And there you be, you're beginning to see the work of theology. Now, I'll make a reference to a, a gospel, probably the first gospel, the gospel of Mark, which following Joel Marcus, I think, was written under the influence of Paul's theology. And, and in chapter 10, Jesus explains the meaning of his uh, ministry uh, going to Jerusalem to suffer and die with that great statement, for the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to lay down his life a ransom for many. That's the new thing in the world. Ah. That's the thing for which there's no pre-existing concept, vocabulary, or term. And that's why in Mark you have this weird word, hilasterion, that no one really knows what to do with, even though we translate it as ransom. Right, exactly, right. And so you you explicate one mystery with another (laughs) mystery, but you start to make it clear that uh, a Messiah who would be the suffering servant of Isaiah chapter 53 or a suffering servant of Isaiah chapter 53, who would be the apocalyptic son of man, this is the synthesis that's being created somehow in the history of Jesus's passage from cross uh, to resurrection. That's the new thing in the world that's being uh, introduced. All right, well then let's move now from the cross to the resurrection. How does that how does that contribute to substantially what theology is? It's not just Christ crucified, but that crucified Christ was also raised. So how does that inform what we're doing in the theological task? Well, very good. Uh, uh, and just uh, to sew up that discussion of 1 Corinthians 1, but before I move to 1 Corinthians 15, my great teacher, J. Lewis Martin, in his seminar on Paul that I attended as a graduate student, fielded the objection of someone who took Paul's words to mean that the gospel is in principle unintelligible and that it will always be nothing but foolishness. And if we stick to the Bible, we would never dare to try to explain this unfathomable mystery. And J. Lewis Martin pondered that for a moment and said, if God rejects the wisdom of this world, how much more does God reject the foolishness of this world? (laughs) End of discussion. It was wonderful. It was delicious. Wonderful. All right. So the truth is, is that the, the new lives of Christians, of the spiritual people, as Paul explains in uh, 1 Corinthians 2 and so forth, is an embattled existence. It's an ebb and flow, a seesaw, a back and forth, two steps forward, one step back. And the struggle of the congregation to live together in unity and love is never without uh, its uh, profound challenges, even to the point of apparent death uh, and 
Paul warns the Corinthians repeatedly that they're on the verge of spiritual death because they do not know, they do not understand what the gospel is and what it has done for them. Do you not know? Do you not know? Do you not know? How often that that refrain echoes through Paul's writings. Paul expects them to know something, doesn't he? Right, right. So theology is a cognitive discipline. It, It audaciously claims to know God, not on the basis of its own philosophical uh, speculations or anything else, but on the basis of this word that we've talked about. Now, this word, however, can only be perceived in faith because this word fundamentally is a promise of things that are not yet visible. So this is an unusual kind of knowledge. It's the knowledge of faith. It's the knowledge, faith's knowledge of the God of the gospel, the God of the promise, uh, that anticipates a future that is not yet fully visible. I just want to interpose there. So we'll definitely have to do a whole episode on what exactly is faith, because I think that is no by no means clear anymore. But here, just on what you've said, I would say faith is that thing which cognitively connects the word from outside to our own subjective intelligence that that puts the two in dialogue with each other. Yeah, I would even go so far to say that faith, for Paul, is a microcosm of the cosmic transformation that he thinks the resurrection of the crucified one has inaugurated, and that this faith uh, is therefore not any kind of human opinionating. Uh, Plato defined pistis, faith, as the lowest form of knowledge, mere human opinion. And many people take faith to mean that. In Paul, faith, I don't think, means that at all. Faith means something much more like the uh, uh, unanticipated uh, uh, transformation of myself away from self-reliance on my own brain power or muscle power to a new kind of reliance on the promised power of God. But just as, you know, Christ has come and risen and ascended into heaven, but has not yet come again, and not all things are subjected, and the battle is not over, it's also in that kind of ambiguous space that faith dwells too. That's why it is faith and not either absolute knowledge or, you know, the lowest form of human opinionating. It's that in-between thing, just as the age we live in is an in-between thing. I think that's precisely right, yes. Uh, And Paul even says that in 1 Corinthians at the end of the 13th chapter, that uh, now these three abide, faith, hope, and love. He doesn't say faith is the greatest. He doesn't say hope is the greatest because both faith and hope will someday terminate in knowledge and sight. They're necessarily provisional. They're necessarily provisional. They're uh, uh, theology for for wayfarers, people on the way, right? So for Paul, it's very important to insist only Christ is risen. Ah. Only Christ is risen from the dead. We're not there yet. He definitely is, but we're not. 
he is, but we're not. And that's why he's qualitatively different from us. He's the Savior, we're the saved. He's the Redeemer, we're the redeemed, right? He's the Lord, we're his uh, people. So theology, again, like faith and like our age, is this in-between space between the death with Christ and the death of Christ himself and our resurrection with the already risen Christ. I think that's exactly right. And that's what Paul's driving at in chapter 15. This is the second remarkable, another of three, I'll mention, remarkable statements about God. So the first was in the first chapter, God is bringing to naught the things that are. God is not the static Uh, anchor of the cosmos, uh, supporting the status quo and keeping it from uh, uh, um, revolutionary change. On the contrary, for Paul, God is the source of the subversion of the way things are and the working out of of, uh, um, a new and reconciled world. Right. So that's, that's the first remarkable thing that Paul says about G.O.D. Uh, on the basis of the gospel event as the beginning of our theologizing. But now, transitioning all the way to the end of 1 Corinthians to chapter 15, Paul writes this remarkable statement about God. Christ must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. When all things are subject, subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things under him, that God may be all and all. That God may be all in all. That's a remarkable statement, uh, that God may be all what in do all. You, what do you think it means? <laughs> Tell me. Yeah, I know. It... it I think what it means for Paul in the context of this verse is that there will be manifestly no more usurpers, contenders for the throne. Okay. Mm. All the others will have been defeated. Uh, Death will have been defeated. Uh, Devil and powers and principalities will have been defeated. So this is in the context of a, a cosmic argument about the nature of Christ and his relationship to God. Yeah, I was. It's interesting. My first um, reaction to just hearing that verse again was thinking of, of uh, Augustine's argument that that God is both the giving and the receiving in us, that uh, He will have the glory not only of giving us His grace, but also being the one to receive the grace in us through the power of the Spirit. I like that very much. Of course, there's a lot from Saint Augustine that I like very much along such lines. But we can actually talk about that uh, in the th- with the third statement that I want to get to in a little bit okay. from the middle of 1 Corinthians. Uh, but here I simply want to uh, make the point that theology, here's the fancy word we use. Theology uh, is eschatological. So give us a definition of eschatology. Yeah, eschatos is the Greek word for the last, the final. And L-O-G-Y, eschatology, is the knowledge over the doctrine of last things. And Karl Barth famously said in uh, his commentary on the epistle uh, to the Romans that theology that is not 
thoroughly eschatological, has nothing whatsoever to do with Jesus Christ. And I think this was a great insight of Karl Barth's uh, that the philosophies of this world, because they finally seek the stabilization of the cosmos to preserve it from uh, the dangers of change, uh, are always the opposite of eschatology. They're protology. They're trying to go back to the primal beginning, the first cause, and, and if only we knew the source, the origin of things, then we could keep uh, ourselves anchored in it and not drift away into danger. The classic Neoplatonic position. Yeah, I, I would say even more broadly uh, that it's often this, what's behind the mythologies uh, of the world religions. And in philosophy, those mythologies are rationalized and naturalized, but the same motivation is there. If only we could, what did Stephen Hawking's in Brief History of Time said that if he could get to a unified field theory, right, he would know the mind of God. Of course, Hawking's wasn't any kind of Christian believer, but what he was saying was that this would be the fulfillment of the philosophical quest to know the absolute origin. So that the origin is essentially more truthful than the goal or the end. That's the basic issue at stake. Right. But now if we take Paul's rhetoric about G.O.D. seriously, that's not what makes God, God. What makes God, God is not a fixity, self-sameness, self-identity, persistence uh, in in an immovable and invulnerable place. But God initiates a creation. Uh, God uh, becomes human uh, in the incarnation of his Son. God, the Spirit, dwells in the hearts of believers uh, and makes them into his temple. And in the end, God becomes all things to all people, to everything. So the truth lies in the forward movement working towards the ultimate goal. Yes, this is what one of my great teachers, Robert Jensen, called a metaphysics of anticipation in distinction from a metaphysics of persistence. Uh, We can talk about that some other time. The point here is that Christian believers are caught between the cross and the resurrection. They have been seized by the good news of Christ crucified, which means that already now they have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, Romans 5.1. But And because we have peace with God now through our Lord Jesus Christ, through faith in him, we have assurance that we will be saved. But notice, typically for Paul, salvation is in the future. From Jesus who rescues us from the wrath to come. God's just judgment on the ruin of his creation. So even in the state of absolute certainty of our peace with God, yet there is a peace we're still waiting for, this confirmation or experienced evidence of the actual future salvation. Yeah, I would say, but it's not simply an epistemological issue. Oh, gee, now now I know my faith is true. Uh, it's For Paul, it's much deeper than that. 
If Christ is not risen, your faith is in vain, and you are still dead in your sins. If Christ is not raised, we are of all people most miserable. <laughs> right? It's it's really that the future, the coming, the eschatological victory is the victory that accomplishes salvation, and not just my souls going to heaven when I die, but the reconciliation of the whole cosmos. Right. So I guess then you you alluded to wanting to get uh, after the end, get back to the middle. So I guess that what that raises for me now as we talk about this is, you know, if we've started with this transformation of our knowledge through the foolishness of the cross, and we're looking forward confidently, not only to our own salvation, but to the cosmic reconciliation when God is all in all, then looking back, my first reaction to your asking me about 1 Corinthians was, oh yes, all the pastoral misery that Paul went through with his badly behaved congregation. So what about this <laughs> middle space between changed knowledge and future hope, and yet we're such wretches in between. We do everything wrong. We struggle. We fight. We fight each other. We fight the pastor. We fight the, you know, everything. <laughs> we fight ourselves. We fight God. Where is all this coming from, and what are we supposed to be doing in this in-between time, and how will theology help us with that? Theology helps us by making certain that we know. Do you not know? Do you not know? Do you not know? Making certain that we know that we are engaged in a great cosmic battle. And the line of battle is drawn right through every believer's heart. Uh, we can talk about Romans chapter 7 sometime in this connection. Uh, but I think if you just look at 1 Corinthians and look at all the controversies and conflicts that Paul analyzes in them, he's always bringing it back. Do you not know that you... Uh, uh, <clears throat> do you not know uh, that, you're, that you all are the temple of the Holy Spirit? How can you join your body to that of a prostitute, First uh, Corinthians 7, when he talks about sexual relationships and so forth. <clears throat> uh, this knowledge of whose we now, whom we now belong to is what Paul constantly uh, does to analyze and uh, assist the Corinthians in their struggle. So it seems... Scholars... Uh, sorry, I was going to say, so it, it needs to be said then that even with this initially transformed knowledge and consciousness that comes with being a believer, by no means implies that we just get it and we get all its impl implications and we implement them instantly, but that there actually is a, a struggle, as you said, a battle, but an ongoing task in our lives to understand better to apply more powerfully, to engage more deeply with all of these implications. Because when Paul says, do you not know? Well, apparently they don't, but apparently they are also <laughs> capable of knowing with the right teaching, direction, reflection, of course, ongoing assistance of the Holy Spirit and so forth. But it's it's not simply, a, you know, you're converted or you're baptized and then boom, you get it all and everything you do is instinctively correct and Christian from then on out. Uh, I think that's exactly right. For Paul, the Christian life is an ongoing battle. It's a battle between the spirit and the flesh, which for Paul means a battle between self-reliance versus reliance on the God of the gospel. 
and learning that is something maybe intellectually you can get in a minute, but living that is a lifetime of struggle. <laughs> so true, so true. So that in the middle of 1 Corinthians in chapter 8, Paul has a very interesting discussion on knowing how to distinguish God from the idols. And this has come up because there are some uh, people in the Corinthian congregation who feel that they are superior to the weaker brothers and sisters because they know that idols aren't real. And with this knowledge that idols are not real because God is one and there can't be more than one God, um, they are free to eat meat that has been sacrificed to idols because it's a non-issue. Well, Paul says, no, it's not really a non-issue. And this is how he talks about it. I think it's very interesting. 1 Corinthians chapter 8. As to eating of foods offered to idols, we know that, and here he's probably quoting something these strong Christians in Corinth have written to him. We know that, quote, an idol has no real existence, end quote, and that, quote, there is no God but one. All right, so Paul's agreeing, yeah, theoretically that's true. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven and on earth, and now he makes an interesting parenthetical remark, as indeed there are many gods. Quote, gods, yeah gods and many quote lords end quote it's just like luther's uh, um, explanation of the first commandments in the large catechism when he says it's your heart that makes a lord or a god which sounds like an ontologically outrageous statement but he's not intending it ontologically he's intending it spiritually and existentially it's what you worship that is your lord even if it is utterly unworthy of being your lord Well said, well said. And that's why in verse 6 of chapter 8, Paul goes on to specify, yet for us. Now, who is this for us? This is us who have been called by the gospel, by the word of the cross, and put into this battle, put into this engagement, as Paul has continued to argue all through the letter. Yet for us, There is one God, the Father, from whom all things are and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things are and through whom we exist. I would submit that what you see in this passage, and of course we could add in here the Holy Spirit, who Paul has talked about in chapters 2 through 4 of 1 Corinthians, it just doesn't happen to appear in this formula. But I would submit that here you see how Paul is saying one of the fundamental tasks of theology in the time between the ages, between the already of Jesus' cross and resurrection and the not yet of the cosmic reconciliation and the resurrection of believers. In this being situated in this in-between time, uh, one of the fundamental tasks of theology is to continually distinguish the God of the gospel from the idols of the nations, to identify the God who is the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the God 
uh, from whom and for whom all things exist, the Lord through whom and uh, to whom uh, all things exist. This leads us, doesn't it, to this is like an early statement of what will develop into the Christian doctrine of the Trinity. And here you should not think of a mathematical or metaphysical puzzle. How can three be one and one be three? Here you should think of how succinctly do I identify the G-O-D of the gospel? Answer, the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ on whom uh, he breathed his spirit to reveal him as the beloved son. Something Which like I that. would point out is a very action historical oriented definition rather than a protological ontological or a definition based in origin. Because if there's a father with a son who is breathing on the son, that already implies so much more movement and dynamism than either a Platonic or Aristotelian protological concept of God could possibly handle or allow. Yeah, I think, in fact, there's a kind of a deep tension there. But I think we can qualify that excellent statement that you just made just this way. Well, however much movement and dynamism and historicity is therefore attributed to the God of the gospel, uh, it must be in such a way that uniquely this father together with his son and spirit is the one creator of all that is not God. Right, right. I like that. Right. right? So that un it unifies origin and end without making them somehow at odds with each other. Yeah, I think that's ex we can. This is a deep, difficult issue, in which uh, I've I've stuck my foot into a hornet's nest <laughs> publishing a book about this. All right. Uh, but let that suffice for okay. now. Okay. Well, what I'd like to so, do. So yeah. So I think we should probably start summing this up, don't you? Yes. Think? Well, actually, I was going to say uh, since we've already been going quite a while, and I we've probably repeated ourselves enough. I'd actually like to finish with kind of two follow-up questions that occurred to me, and they're probably both episodes in themselves. But let's just get a brief answer to both of them now. So you specify that theology is a response to this external event of. Jesus being crucified and yet being raised up by the Father and that this has this transforming effect. But what I notice in the way you talk about theology is that you simply presuppose it. It's your starting point. You don't in any way talk about theology having to prove it, but rather to take it as its point of departure. And my feeling is that for a lot of people nowadays, that's precisely the non-starter. Why should you take that as a given? And certainly a lot of the history of um, modernist and enlightenment and postmodern thought has been so preoccupied with the question of proving it and what counts as adequate proof and demanding you believe the proof or demanding you disbelieve the proof, but it's none of it will simply presuppose it. So maybe the question is, how dare you simply presuppose what everyone seems to think has to be proven before you can even take the next step? How would you respond to that? Well, I think the gospel has always been a little bit of a non-starter. <laughs> <laughs> it is, in fact, folly to Greeks and a stumbling block to Jews. It simply is that. Uh, and Paul doesn't deny that. He owns it. Okay, so let's, let, let's be clear that I don't think any kind of systematic apologetics along the lines that you're suggesting 
can ever possibly work. And so just why don't you clarify what you mean by systematic apologetics there? Yeah, if I could convince someone rationally um, uh, of God who gives life to the dead and calls into being things which do not exist, I would be God. (laughs) And I'm not. Uh, It's up to God to demonstrate God. It's up to that's what the whole eschatological orientation means, and why the knowledge of theology is a knowledge of faith and not yet of sight. It would take away the the finitude and vulnerability of us mortal theologians to think that we could ever be in the position of proving or demonstrating God, uh, the God of the gospel. Well, wait, I thought the point of religion was to get rid of vulnerability and finitude in order to put one over on everyone else. (laughs) Well, not for Paul. Paul the apostle, when Paul has to answer this question, he's challenged again and again as to his authority to say the things that he does. And Paul will say two things in principle. Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Uh, referring to his revelation experience on the road to Damascus. Uh, But of course, that's nothing but Paul's testimony. Right, right. Right. Paul asserts that he has seen the risen Lord. The only other proof Paul gives is look at the stigmata, look at the stripes, the chains, the shipwrecks, the beatings, that I have endured. My life is conformed in vulnerability to the life of the suffering servant Lord. Boy, that's a bad marketing strategy, Paul. It stinks as a marketing (laughs) strategy, but it does have the ring of authenticity. So So we're not in in a place here either of proof, but we're also not in a place of choice, really, which is another common approach to faith or religion nowadays, is that you choose it or you choose to believe it. And what we're talking about in this event character of the gospel is something that finally remains mysterious in some way. Why is it that I believe? And why is it that that person doesn't? Whatever is going on there is not something that gives those who believe Uh, intrinsically to themselves, some kind of superiority, some better knowledge, some vantage point or whatever. If anything, it seems to put them in the way of shipwrecks and beatings and martyrdom. Yeah, well, like you said, not a great marketing (laughs) strategy. Right. But, But of course, you know, this is part of the transformation of human subjectivity that occurs when faith is given to us as a gift through this paradoxical word of the cross. Uh, that transformation is to count uh, all that, as Paul says in Philippians, to count all that as, as garbage, as uh, worthless, it, uh, in order to uh, gain Christ and his resurrection and so forth and so on. There's a real transformation of values, right. a real transformation of the values of the heart, of what one loves. So I think that uh, th- that's not to say that the truth of the gospel is proved uh, by the lives that it actually does transform this way. Again, the proof of the gospel can only be the proof that the God of the gospel brings in, in the consummation. Uh, but what Paul cares about is not proving God, but 
identifying the God of the gospel and distinguishing God from the idols. That's what Paul cares so about. So that that God can, in turn, through the power of the preached word, confirm himself to the people who would or would like to believe. That's right. That's right. And, and so when I said at the beginning that theology is a very contested discipline, I think this is one of the most fundamental ways in which theology is contested. People who try to defend God or defend the Bible or defend the historical Jesus or whatever are really missing the point. This, you cannot defend these things. It's not given to you to, to, to defend these things. It's given to you to live these things. Always trusting, trusting that the, the final defense will come as a promised gift and not a theological achievement. So I think it's safe to say that in episodes ahead, as we continue to talk theology, what we're not going to be doing is trying to prove or ultimately persuade anyone of anything, but we will give bare testimony to what we have heard and believed. And if particular obstacles come up, we can address those. I think that's what George Lindbeck called ad hoc apologetics. So if there is some blockade in our culture or its reasoning patterns or ethical patterns that makes the gospel unintelligible, we can address those on a case-by-case basis, but not because we can create the ultimate irrefutable framework to show you why you absolutely must believe that it is true. That's not something we can offer. I quite agree. I quite agree. That's not what we can try to do in these podcasts either. There is one thing I could say, though, uh, one more thing we could say about that. When it is clear that we relate truly to the God of the gospel through faith uh, in the word that is given to us prior to our thought, and the word that we therefore in faith reflect upon and meditate on and grow into, as you were saying earlier. When all that's clear, it also becomes clear that everyone else in the whole world, because we are finite creatures, also assumes first principles, also takes things on faith. Uh, And you can then expose those implicit faiths to prophetic uh, scrutiny and critique. I think we would have a lot to say uh, to Marxists, to Democrats and Republicans, uh, to fascists. I know when I do my my, um, teaching on Luther's theology, when we get to law and gospel, the point I always try to make is everybody is obeying a law and everyone is hoping in a gospel may not be God's law or gospel, probably won't be God's law or gospel, but these are simply givens of the way we live. And so if you can prophetically expose, it's not that you have no law, but that you live according to this law, which is not God's law. And it's not that you have no gospel, but you are hoping in this gospel, which is not God's gospel. Right. And so again, that takes us back to the claim that the present task of theology in a contested and conflicted world is to identify the God of the gospel by exposing the idols, right? 1 Corinthians 8. Uh, And much of the work of theology 
takes place just in that contestation. Right. Well, then that maybe answers what's going to be, what's my second follow-up question, and this is where I want to end. And I have a feeling that the answer to this question is what we're going to spend the rest of our podcast history doing. But the, the question is, if you know we, we share the faith of the Apostle Paul, and we're between this cross and resurrection, the, the beginning and the end, we're struggling hard, as the Corinthian church did, to live it right and believe it. How can we successfully transfer Paul's convictions about who God was into our own times and places where we face challenges and questions and realities that Paul never could have dreamed of and never directly addresses? How, how can we actually successfully and faithfully still be doing what Paul is paradigmatically doing in the Corinthian correspondence in our own place and time? And how do we know that we are being faithful in the process? Well, I guess here you have to Put the question, can theology learn from experience, from historical experience? We're talking 2,000 years after Paul. Right. It's there's, a long time. There's been a, a, lot of, a lot of readers of Paul, a lot of interpreters of Paul uh, on and on through the ages. And we today are in that living stream of tradition. I read a great book some time ago on the controversial Paul. Paul is a controversial figure in history. Maybe we'll talk about that sometime. And I think that part of theology, as I said earlier, is talk about talk about God. And knowing the historical tradition, the living tradition of theology, how Paul has been used and abused, interpreted and misinterpreted through the centuries, serves a great deal of, uh, serves to orient us a great deal in answering to that question. But having said that, that's on a more academic level. If Paul, the only possibility of our continuing in Paul's paradigmatic work as a theologian is if Paul's gospel is still proclaimed and still overtakes people and brings them to faith. That's the only uh, bridge between what Paul did in the first century and what we're doing, going to do in the 21st century. Uh, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever, says the letter to the Hebrews, not Paul's letter. But I think Paul would like the thought. Yeah. yeah. All right, great. Well, I think we have many great conversations ahead of us. This was a good one, I think, to get started and just give a sense of how we understand the discipline of theology and what both of us do and when we do our, our theologian work. And next time, we will be talking about the question, are the scriptures holy? We're not going to ask necessarily if they are reliable, um, historically accurate, inerrant, infallible, total nonsense, but a different question entirely. Are the scriptures holy? So please join us next time for the next episode of Queen of the Sciences. Thanks for listening to the Queen of the Sciences podcast. For show notes and more, visit our website, queenofthesciences.com. To find out more about what we do, visit sarahhenlickywilson.com and paulhenlicky.com. Finally, please leave us a review on iTunes and tell a friend about the show.